It's, uh, all those songs have very powerful words to them. Um, now, I just want to take a little bit of opportunity here to, to rub some salve on some wounds, okay? Um, I just want you to know how tough the book of James, I know the book of James has been tough series for us. A lot of, uh, a lot of harsh things in James, is there not? It's been rough. And I want you to know when I'm going through the book of James during the week and preparing it, it's rough on me. There's many times I just wanted to quit and move to Psalms for a little bit, you know? Read something about seeing God in the sanctuary, you know, something nice, you know? But James has been kicking my butt too. So it's been harsh. Uh, but I want to let you know we have three messages left. We have today, we have next week, and then the week after. I think that's the 21st, if I'm not mistaken, right, Bruce? We're going to have a message that I think will capsulize it and culminate James in a very rich and powerful way for all of us. I want to encourage you guys to make sure that you're here to invite some friends. I believe it could be a subject matter that could change the way we do church in the garden service. It could change the way you approach God. It could change your walk with God. It could change your walk with each other. I really do believe it could have that much of an impact. We're going to introduce some things that I think will be new disciplines for us together as a congregation. So James is winding up. We have today, the next week, and then the very last message in James is on the 21st. Um, that's very, it's going to be, I think, going to be very powerful. Now, just so you know what's going to happen after that, I'm going to start a series on uh, prayer. It's going to be called Fun with Prayer. And what we're going to do is we're going to dispel the myths that prayer is just reflective. Now, prayer is reflective, the heads bowed, the eyes closed, and the hands. You know, that's part of prayer for sure, but that's about 3% of what prayer is. And too many times we have, we have this narrow definition of prayer, and so we actually beat ourselves up a lot because we think we're not people of prayer because we're not on our knees all the time. And with our hands folded and eyes closed, we're going to broaden that for about five or six weeks, just to give you a heads up on what's coming up in the next few months. I'm very excited about it. Now, um, you guys remember the first message in James we talked about? James says, count it joy when you go through trials. Remember he said that? Count it a privilege when you go through difficult times. And I know the whole, the whole series in the book of James, many of you have shared with me through email and phone call and text message that it's been harsh. Well, that's what James was talking about when he said, be glad when you go through things that make you uncomfortable. Be glad when you go through things that are hard because it tests your faith. And it lets you know for sure if you have faith. If you have received the implanted word of God, it makes you let you know for sure if you have a relationship with God or if you're just a religious person. And obviously there's a big difference. Well, today we have one of those messages where he tests you again. Title is coup d'etat. How many of y'all know what a coup is? Right? A coup is when somebody takes over somebody else's position of authority usually a political move or a military move, and what happens is you're in a situation where you say, you know what, I can do it better than that person in charge. I'm going to organize events and sequences and people together so that I can take their job over. That's what I'm going to do. That's what a coup d'etat is. And in many ways, frankly, as Christians, often we are in the midst of a coup d'etat when it comes to God. 
See, often we are in a situation where we, through our daily planning, through the way we judge other people, through the way we interact with one another, and through the, through the way that we, we plan out and take control of our lives, many times we are involved in a coup to overthrow God. Let's read this. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, who, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are just a mist, a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Another very encouraging, warm, fuzzy passage from the book of James. Guys, I'm sorry. All I can do is preach to you what's there, right? I mean, I could try to make it more fun and, and uh, palatable, but we wouldn't be doing justice to what the Scripture is teaching us. There's a reason why the book is there. And it is a reality check for us in many times. So let's go right into the, the first concept that I want to share with you today. <clears throat> the first thing we seem to do a lot of times as Christians is we take over God's role as judge. And you remember, I've shared with you, in James there's been a bunch of sandwiches, right? Where there's a concept and there's some other things in the middle, and then he finishes it off with another concept. Well, a few weeks ago, if you guys remember, we had a sermon called Law and Order, Religious Intent. This is a judgment sandwich. Okay? And so the first thing I want to share with you about the role as judge is what James calls it when we judge other people. He says, don't speak evil against one another. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Now, it's interesting because what James says here is this. When you sit in judgment of a brother, he's talking specifically now about people who are Christians. He's talking about how we treat one another. We've had a lot of discussion about how you interact with the world. But now James is narrowing in in the next, you know, the rest of this chapter. And in chapter 5, he's talking about how we interact with one another. And basically what he's saying here, guys, is that when you judge somebody else who's a brother in Christ, you're speaking evil. Remember what he said about what comes out of the heart? Overflow of wickedness. Filthiness, this is another example of filthiness and overflow of wickedness. When we judge someone else, we look at them and we pinpoint their weakness and we call it out. And many times when we call it out, how do we really do it? We don't do it to their face, do we? We do it to our friend. Hey, you see what Joe did on Tamiami Trail? Did you see that? <laughs> you see how he cut? I, I know his license plate, mobile preacher. I've seen it. And I know how he... Don't ever do that to me because that's evil. Don't ever judge me. <laughs> the next thing I want to share with you is 
Judge versus doer. Remember earlier on we had a lesson that said, don't be just hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. And he talked about the fact that if the word of God has been implanted in your heart and life, then there's going to be actions in your life that show that the word of God is there. And then he said this, right? True religion is this, to visit the orphans and the widows. And I explained to you that the reason he used that terminology is because orphans were the lowest of the low. They were the dirtiest, they were the poorest, they were the most taken advantage of people in society during that time. It wasn't like it is today where you have, not that orphans have it great, they don't, but they have, there's orphanages, there's foster homes, and, and the church has done a lot to begin to come alongside and help that be better. And you think it's bad now, it was horrible back then, horrible. And he says, true religion is this, not judging, but visiting the poor and the orphans and the widows, those who are the lowest of the low, the base of society. Now, what he says in this is, is the fact that if you are speaking evil of your brother, if you are judging someone, you are now a judge and not a doer. There's a problem. Because if you're just a judge, then you don't have the implanted word of God. And frankly, what James is saying is, you're not a believer. Now, this is hard for me. Because there's a level where you have to recognize where if somebody's struggling in sin, you want to turn them from their ways. And we understand that. We're going to talk about that in a couple weeks. But what James is talking about here is this mindset, this concept that you have to declare someone unrighteous. And when you're doing that, it's filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and that is overcoming and overtaking the ability to be a doer of the word, visiting the orphans and the widows. Because frankly, if you have a heart that's judgmental, you probably don't have a heart that is one of service. See, judges have a hard time serving. The law, by the way, he says here, in this passage right here, let me just read it to you. It says, but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. The law is the implanted word of God. It's the same thing. It's a synonym. He uses it the same way as he uses the implanted word of God. You can either try to impose the law on someone, or you can receive it in meekness. Does that make sense? There's two ways to deal with God's word. You can impose it. Or you can receive it. Which side of the equation are you on most often? Are you somebody who tries to impose it? Or are you somebody who tries to receive it? You see the mindset? You see how it's different? Because if you're trying to impose it, you're full of arrogance. If you're trying to receive it, you're meek, you're broken, you're humble. And then he says, there is but one lawgiver and judge, and he is able to save or destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? See, salvation and judgment belong to God. I mean, what's the point, really, of judging someone else's weaknesses? Are you by somehow going to judge them into salvation? Now listen, I don't like the way you dress, I don't like the music you listen to, 
I don't like the way you treat your wife. I don't like the way you treat your neighbor. And I'm judging you. And the reason I'm doing this is because I'm going to save you. What's the point of us being judgmental? Do we somehow have the arrogance to think that I am going to save that person? Are we going to judge them with arrogance into salvation? What does the scripture say salvation comes from? Receive with meekness the implanted word of God, which is able to save your souls. It's receiving God's word with humility that saves souls. And it's kind of funny that sometimes we feel like that we can somehow impart righteousness. Can you imagine, though, if the shoe were on the other foot? Let me read this passage to you. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while a weak person eats only vegetables. That's not saying you vegetarians are bad people. He's talking about, I mean, I don't understand you, but still. <laughs> let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servants of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. You see that last part? For you are able to make him No, for the Lord is able to make him stand. It's God who has the power to save and destroy, not you. It's not your judgment, your arrogance, your declarations that can help somebody figure out where they need to go. It's the implanted word of God. Who implants it? Not us. The judge implants it. One lawgiver. What does lawgiver mean in this passage? It means one who takes the word, the law, and gives it. That's what it means. Even if what you say about someone could be true, consider the shame that you would feel if someone revealed all your sins and your shortcomings. Remember, we all answer to God, who is the ultimate judge. So we can see that the first coup d'etat that we need to avoid, if we receive the implanted word of God, we're not going to have this habit of taking over God's role as judge. That's not our job. You wouldn't be very good at it. Because it would be full of hypocrisy. The next thing we do is often we try to take over God's plan. Another coup that we try to operate is taking over God's plan. <clears throat> Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town... We will spend a year there. We'll trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist, a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. The first thing we do in our coup of taking over God's plan is we make some pretty bold assumptions, don't we? We make bold assumptions about what tomorrow will bring. We make bold assumptions about what's going to happen in our life. We make bold assumptions about just how much control we really do have. I'm not saying you can't be a planner. But what I am saying is this. For you to assume that you know how things are going to work out is foolish. For my wife and I, we had things planned out, and our life changed dramatically over five years ago. We don't know what tomorrow brings. 
don't know if you guys heard, but uh, one of the greatest pastors in America today who's had a huge impact, Pastor Rick Warren at Saddleback Church, his son committed suicide Friday night. On Thursday, I'm sure Rick Warren wasn't planning his day, okay, I've got to go here, prepare my sermon, oh, then I've got to deal with my son's death on Friday, then I've got to get, he wasn't planning that. He couldn't make that assumption. Vaporizers. You guys know what those are, right? You turn them on, they throw vapor up, help you with your sinuses, or, you know, maybe if your shirt collar is sticking up all the time, maybe. <laughs> That's what our life is. You ever see what happens with a vaporizer? The steam comes up, and it's there, and it comes out of the vaporizer pretty full, right? Pretty, pretty rich and full, and then in a couple seconds, it's gone. That's what our life is. So it's foolish to make assumptions when our life is just a vapor. I don't mean to be too dark, but I don't know how many of you are going to be alive tomorrow. I hope all or most, but I don't know. I can't make that assumption. I have to live with the reality that our lives, my life, your life, all of our lives, they're just vapors. I mean, I just got through telling you about what we were going to be preaching on the next three or four weeks. I don't know that I'm going to get there. But see, when we try to take over God's plan, it's another example of arrogance, which is to say, I've got control of what's going on around me. I know what's going to happen. I'm going to go here. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And it's a mindset that is the opposite of meekness. Let me read this passage to you. Here's what it's like when we operate that way. We make plans without the reality of God. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn? Talking about Lucifer, Satan. You who are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. So what do we do with that? Can we not plan? Can we not make arrangements? I'm not saying that at all. Here's what I'm trying to explain to you. This is the last point I have for you. We have to live in the reality of the acknowledged presence of God. And it's a fine line here. And I believe you can only do that when the implanted word of God ex uh, exists in you. Here's what I mean. As you see someone else's flaws, the first thing that should pop in your mind is, God knows mine. The judge is present. The judge is here. So before I get arrogant, before I get judgment, before I start passing and try to inflict the word of God on somebody, I have to recognize that the judge is here. It's not my place. Now, judge, if you want me to help, you let me know. Make it clear. But it's not my place to judge. Why? Because I recognize the judge is here. If you're making plans about what sermons we're going to preach in the next few weeks, about where you're going to go to school if you're a young person, about what you're going to do at work if you're an adult, and all these other things, recognize I'm making these plans, but they're subject to change because I'm not in charge. 
So you can plan, but there's this reality that sets into your mind that you can never seem to forget. God is real. God is here. I'm not in charge. He is. I'm going to make these plans, but at the same time, I recognize God can change them. See, it's a brokenness. You see the difference? One is arrogant and one is meek and humble. One is meek and humble that says, I am in submission to the judge who can save or destroy. I'm in submission to the man who makes the plans. I can operate within the confines of what he has for my life, but in the end, he has veto power. Accepting the fact that his will supersedes yours. Now, he says in this, let me read this to you again. He says, instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this. He's not talking about memorizing some religious script. He's not saying that every time you make a plan, you have to say, okay, if God wills, then we're going to go here and, and have brunch at Sarah's Cafe because that's the only place in town you can go and not get food poisoned. You could say that. <laughs> oh, sorry, as an accident. Um, but but what he's, he's not talking about some magical script that you have to, oh, if the Lord wills. He's talking about a mindset, a way of thinking, a way of emotional and intellectual processing that always acknowledges that God is real, God is here, he is in charge, and he is your heavenly dad. You see, one who has received the implanted word of God has a perspective or a frame of reference that they are in constant submission to God. Not only submission, but constant reliance. There's no way I can go here or there and buy or sell and make profit unless God wills it. <clears throat> even in the face of wanting to judge others, or even in long-term or short-term planning or daily living, we have to live in the reality that there is one greater who saved our soul that is present. Get this now. Even in the midst of your sinfulness, recognizing the presence of the lawgiver, the word implanter, the soul saver, even in the midst of that, recognizing he is alive, he is here, he is in charge. I'm operating, I'm making plans, I'm doing what I'm doing, but I know this, he's got veto power because I am not going to have a coup d'etat in my life. I'm not going to try to take over his role as judge or ruler. Is there a constant reality in your mind of God's presence and who he really is? Ask yourself that question. Even when I struggle on Tamiami Trail, and we use that a lot because I think it's a great example of trial. Count it joy when you go through trials and difficult times. Tamiami Trail during the season. That's it. It took me five minutes to get out of my neighborhood yesterday. Five minutes. And I was sitting there just praying and singing songs the whole time. In the midst, I can tell you honestly, in the midst of my frustration, I still knew God was there. In the midst of my humble, godly response to the granny that cut me off in her Lincoln Town car, I was aware of God's presence. In the midst of planning the sermons for the next four or five weeks, I knew God's presence was there. 
in the midst of planning for my day job for the next week or two weeks, I knew God is there. See, the implanted word of God will not allow you to live otherwise. Here's a great sign to know whether or not God lives in your heart. Are you constantly aware of his presence even when you're struggling? It's easy when you're here, but this ain't the test. Tammy Amy Trail's the test. So my encouragement to you this morning is to take an inventory of just how often the reality of God's presence hits your thought process. Because that is a sign of whether or not the implanted word of God is there. Or do you constantly live in a spirit of coup d'etat? particularly appropriate this morning, I think, reflecting as we are on the reality of God's presence, that we have before us these signs of God's presence with us. We have this bread that seals within us the truth that Christ's body was broken for you and for me, because we could not on our own enjoy a relationship with God, because on our own we appoint ourselves judge, we appoint ourselves the plan maker, we go our own way. We have the cup reminding us that Christ's blood was shed, that we might be in relationship with the one who makes the plans that are good and just and true. With the one who will judge and who judges in mercy and in grace. And so it is in the name of that one, God the Father, Son, and